If you've worked at all as an adult, chances are that you've gone through some sort of training at your place of work. Some of that training was likely helpful. Some of it might not have done anything for you. But there's a helpful body of knowledge all about the science behind learning and training. And in that world, Kurt Krager is, well, the man. Kurt is a professor and chair of the Department of Management in the Fogelman College of Business and Economics at the University of Memphis. During his highly distinguished career, he has published numerous books and scholarly papers on learning, training, and related topics. He is a fellow and former president of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology, and he joined us for a tremendous conversation about the science of workplace instruction. Stay tuned for this discussion with the wonderful Kurt Krager. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Well, Kurt Krager, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. It's great to have you. Hi, guys. It's, it's, gonna, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yes! Guys, if you don't know who Kurt Krager is, you got to go fix yourself right now. <laughs> I seldom tell somebody to pause our episodes and go do something else. Matter of fact, this might be the first time, but you need to go Google it, put it down in a doc, write it down, tattoo it backwards on your forehead. So when you look in the mirror, you can see Kurt Krager and go <laughs> get involved with his material. Yeah, well, and particularly if you're in the world of training and development and you have any interest in that as it pertains to the workplace in particular. So we're so thrilled to have you here, Kurt. And you know, today we're going to talk about a little bit of your academic and professional journey. We're going to talk about this, this thing that you have uh, really become an expert in, the science of workplace instruction and why we need it. And then we're going to talk about some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. So I guess let's just start off Kurt, with uh, you know your academic and professional journey, um, how did you get into this research area? How did you even get into academics in general? We'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Yeah. So, and by the way, Chris, that was, that's the best introduction I've ever received. So, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's just how I feel, and I'm just letting out my feelings here. You know, the the um, the, the decision about an academic career really. This was not really odd, but it really wasn't a decision. You know, I, I you know, I know, you know, graduate students, all of my graduate students have waffled back and forth. Do I want to be a practitioner? Or do I want to be an academic? I don't ever remember saying this is what I'm going to do, and, and I'd rather do, you know, be a professor or something. I just kind of assumed that's what I was. That's why I was in graduate school. So I just kind of pursued that path. So it was never really a conscious decision. And here I are, or here I am. Um, when my my third year. In grad school, I took a class in training and development from Mill Hockle, and he had been my advisor a little bit earlier in the career. And that's another, uh, if you're listening, that's another name you want to go look up because Mill's had uh, a tremendous impact on our field and on me. And I mentioned Mill for two reasons. One is he was a highly, he was like a, either a superstar or a rising superstar, primarily in the area of interviewing. Uh, when I was in grad school, this is like early 80s. And one of the ways that Milt did it is he picked an area of research that nobody was really doing, in this case, kind of process effects and interviews. And just every study that he did was like brand new and publishable in top journals. And so I came out of school thinking, I really need to find this thing no one else is really doing, put my mark on it, and that's kind of the way to success. 
the other thing about this particular class is it was the least enjoyable, most boring class. This was the class on training uh, that I had in grad school. And I also <laughs> remember this is like, you know, almost 40 years ago. Um, 30, yeah, 40 years ago. I remember thinking I will never study training because it's so boring. And we had articles by Skinner, um, uh, Bandura, and, and, and all the articles were about learning. And I go, I want to study training, or well, I want to learn about training. This is learning. And, and part of the reason I learned re later was there was no research on training. So Milk couldn't give us that because nobody was good. So he just had articles on learning. So skipping forward, I came out of graduate school. My goal is to find this topic that no one else is studying that I can look at. And I was really unsuccessful at that. I had a couple of really nice pubs, but I could not find anything that I wanted to do programmatic research on. Some of the work I had done in performance appraisal. So in 89, a good friend of mine now, Ed Salas, which is another name you definitely need to look up, at, although you have to allocate a couple of hours just to look at his CV. Um, Ed was leading research on developing team training tactics for the Navy. And because Ed's a good scientist, he wanted to not only develop the method, but pilot test it with an empirical research, uh, a thorough research design. So Ed brought me down for the summer um, fellowship to do research with him. And he asked me, could you be my evaluation expert? I need someone to design evaluation measures for our training programs. Um, I said, sure. Although I had never read an article on training evaluation, I couldn't tell you what training evaluation was, but it sounded something like performance appraisal, which I felt I knew pretty well. So I spent the summer reading everything I could on training evaluation, which is primarily stuff by Kirkpatrick, and I'm going, you got to be kidding me. This is like, this is weak, and, but that was all there was. And so I went to Ed at the end of the summer, and I said, I think we can come up with something, a way of looking at learning and relating it to um, to training and training evaluation that, that's really fresh, and he said, let's do it. So I brought Kevin Ford on board. We worked really well together. That, over the next two and a half years, became the 1993 monograph that we wrote on learning outcomes, which is my most cited paper. It's you know been recognized in different places. It's one of the most influential papers in training, and it really kind of came out of that, that experience. But one other thing, and then I'll stop blabbering, one other thing I want to share is while I was writing that paper, I was working in a master's program training uh, students to be consultants, and I had never consulted. And so I took my first sabbatical while I was writing this paper, and I went to work for a training consulting firm. And so to me, those two things really shaped the rest of my career because I'm thinking kind of big picture what is learning? How do we relate that to training? But I'm also talking every week with training directors saying, these are the problems that we have. This is what we need to know. And so I think I kind of move forward with those kind of practice science things really as the foundation. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about Kurt is because he's not just up in the clouds. I mean, he's soaring in the clouds for sure, but he's come down and has practical implications and those kinds of things for through real work. Right. Uh, but it wasn't always easy for you. You had some dark moments along the way. Right. You didn't just walk into being one of the top people in the world. Right. I wouldn't call them dark, but I mean, it, it, the, the struggle of I, I think my struggle was primarily just kind of finding like what is it that I want to work on and um, what's fresh, what's no one doing. Uh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not sure. It, 
I know we talked the other day. I might have been overly dramatic about the dark days, but it was just like I was. I wasn't. It wasn't dark days. I was lost in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think we all are at some points in our careers, and I think that's you know. So so it even happens to uh, to Kurt Krager, but he did find this amazing area and has has really been so impactful in the world of of training and certainly with direct implica- implications for those of uh, those of us who care about learning and development in organizations. So um, that's fantastic. You know, I'd like to maybe we can move now to talk a little bit about what you are calling the science of workplace instruction. And I, I love that um, and, and kind of how you have framed it. And there's this really great article that you published recently um, just at, near the in the fall of 2020 in the annual review of organizational psychology and organizational behavior. And it's titled the science of workplace instruction, learning and development applied to work. And you wrote that also with your longtime collaborator, Kevin Ford. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I'd like to dig into that and, um, you know, try to try to really understand what you were going for there. And one thing that I thought was really cool uh, when we were prepping for this episode and having a little conversation the other day was, you know, you mentioned how when you wrote this, that it was kind of the culmination of a lot of thought that you've been giving over the decades. And, um, you know, you had kind of what we call flow experiences where you're just you're it's just coming out and it's like a song inside of you that needed to be written. And I just think that's fantastic. So uh, tell us a little bit about the, this paper and, and and where it went for you. Yeah. So I, I, I told you that this the 1993 paper took, I think, about two and a half years to write and and. A good portion of that was under review, but as you know, when you we have papers in a review, the reviewer two comes back, and you know you have to throw all of this out and put this other stuff in, and so that leads to a lot of writing. And it probably was another year or so before it, probably a year and a half before it came out, but two and a half years. The annual review paper, which I would say I feel as good about um, and proud of as anything I've done, other than maybe the monograph, which I was new at the time. Um, that was that was a four month project um, in terms of the actual writing experience. I had was invited to do the review chapter, and I talked with Kevin the summer before. And you're right; he's a really good friend, longtime collaborator. And Kevin said, "Yeah, I'd be interested in doing it, but I don't want to write a review chapter." And I'm going to go, but they're asking for a review chapter. And I said, "No, in this format, you can propose new things. You can set a vision for the field, things like that. That's what we should really do." We wrote an outline that, so this would have been a year ago, last summer, we wrote an outline that included, like, a, you know, this, what, this is what we know about needs assessment. This is what we know about design. And here are some things to think about in the future. So we had elements of that, but it just, like, it felt like every other review paper. So we went into, like, January, and Kevin's still unhappy with it, and I'm starting to understand why he's unhappy. So in February... I just threw everything out, and Kevin kept saying, this is your paper, this is your voice, what do you want to say? And I came up with this idea for the model of science of workplace instruction. We talked about it. He liked it. And then from really from February 10th to when I turned the final document in on January, or sorry, June 1st, maybe, that was it. So that was, that was written in um, – that was written in in four months, and then it was it was online about six months later. So it came to power. But yeah, you're right that it was. I felt like the stories that are in there, the examples that are in there, the pers- particularly the perspective that's in there, are all things that I really kind of centered on as I thought and and, and worked in the area of learning and development over the last 20 years. So it was really just 
getting the words out of my head onto the literally onto the paper because I'd often write on paper and then type it up. Um, that 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 was the challenge was just being kind of writing and typing fast enough to get all this content out. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you know, I guess in a in a nutshell, even though it is a big idea, um, how would you define maybe for the layperson? Uh, what you mean by the science of workplace instruction? Sure. So um, the science of what the science of workplace instruction does is it pulls together and integrates two disciplines. One would be the science of learning. The other would be the science of training. Um, those two bodies of literature kind of operate somewhat independently of each other and each has strengths and, and gaps. So in the science of learning, we they really, they're, they're kind of primarily rooted in the cognitive sciences and it's really focused on kind of micro tactics to facilitate learning. So if I, um, if I space learning trials over time, uh, people will remember more word pairs than if I stack those trials, kind of at that level. And there's some really cool stuff there, but they do it completely divorced of con content, or I'm sorry, completely uh, divorced of context. The science of training is all about context. And so it's how, you know, how the climate for transfer uh, affects your ability to take what you've learned in training and apply it, how a training assignment if you're told this is mandatory training versus it's optional, how does that affect your motivation to learn? And the science of training really kind of ignores what's in that literal black box of, of learning. And so what the science, the, the kind of in the nutshell, what the science of workplace instruction does is take what we know about micro-learning processes and how to facilitate those and embed those in a kind of a broader systems view that looks how organizational context, individual differences influence the ability to learn and apply. That's awesome. So, you know, you have uh, the, the science of learning, the science of training, those these different research areas coming together. One thing that I, I like about this paper is that you, um, you say, well, here's what learning actually is. And I think it's a great reminder and a great synthesis of, of what we're even talking about here. So um, how do you define this thing we call learning? Yeah, so we, in the paper, we define learning as engaging in mental processes, which we also refer to in, in, in the paper as learning events. So it's engaging in these mental processes that allow us to acquire and retain, this is acquisition and retention, that retention is an important component, knowledge, skills, and affect. And I'll come back and I can say something about that as well, but it's engaging in mental processes, it's resulting in the acquisition and retention of these knowledge, skills, and outcomes, and the, the ability to kind of recognize when is the appropriate the time to apply what, what you learn. And that's too long of a definition. We also define it as the capacity to do the right thing at the right time. Knowing what the right thing is, being able to do the right thing at the right time when, it, when it's necessary. If I can go on just for a second, I just want to kind of highlight a couple things that I think are unique about that. One is that we place the emphasis on engaging in mental processes. So there's concepts like incidental learning. You accidentally learn something and it's there. And so you've had this change in knowledge of skills or whatever, but you didn't set out to do it. And, and there's a level at which we could quibble that they're still doing those mental 
that mental engagement. But if I'm writing this for people in a training field, I don't want to help facilitate accidental learning. So what I want them to do is you need to do things to get people, their brains worrying and working in a certain way so that they achieve these changes in knowledge, skills, and, and, and affect. So that engagement is really critical. Um, the inclusion of affect is really critical. If you look in the science of learning, they will only talk about knowledge and skills. And if I am teaching a class and someone comes up to me and said, I, I was never interested in IO psychology, now I want to be an IO psychologist, I appreciate the cool stuff that you guys do and why that's a really good thing to study, that reflects learning on their part and that, that affect of change needs to be in there. And then there's also this kind of ability to to apply what you've learned in realistic situations. So sometimes you know what to do, but you get in that situation, you freeze, you don't do it right when kind of when you're under pressure. That could, again, you could argue that they've learned something, but again, from a practical perspective, if they can't use it on the job, then I would say they haven't learned it in the way that's necessary. Right. So when organizations are out there, they're really looking for an outcome. But most of the places when I look at HR, training and development, learning and development environment, this stuff gets kind of mixed. Like, I don't know, that like orange vanilla swirl ice cream. It's And nobody knows. It's just kind of its own thing now. And so like this just get really clear for our listeners here. You know, the science of learning exists in what bodies of scientific knowledge? And then let's talk about the science of training. Where Where is that? And so we can just kind of paint how you've merged these maybe more a little bit more clearly. So, Chris, are you asking about kind of their, their where they live, their homes, their worlds? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so science of learning would be in areas like cognitive psychology, cognitive sciences, instructional psychology, educational psychology, when we're talking about instructional psychology, educational psychology, oftentimes we're talking about teaching school-age kids. And so there's, there may, they may be finding stuff, but if we take that and try to apply it to training working adults, there's some, probably some boundary issues there. So it's kind of primarily those areas of cognitive science, cognitive psychology, instructional psychology, instructional technology. It's sometimes a different field from instructional psychology. These, but these are all people who are doing research primarily with, with students sitting at a computer in an isolated lab. Science training would be, you would think it's going to be IO psychology uh, because we study behavior in organizations, and it is, but there's also, you may or may not know this, there's a whole other field called human resource development. They're oftentimes, they're rarely housed in psychology departments, they might be in education, they might be in business, but this area of human resource development has its own literature that, you know, I could take you two articles and show them to you, one from I.O., one from HRID, and, and say, guess which one came from I.O., and you wouldn't be able to guess, because they do the exact same thing using the exact same words, uh, but they just publish in a different field, a different set of journals. So it's really kind of that HRD, I.O., uh, constitutes the world that uh, that the science of training comes from. Yeah. So what you're painting there is this, you know, kind of broad picture of how all of these different researchers out there in these different fields are looking at similar types of issues, but from different angles. And what what I like about what you're doing and what you've done in this article is that you've you've brought them together and you've um, tried and I think succeeded in a very real way to 
to help them cohere together and to help us understand something in a more holistic fashion. And one way that you do that in your work um, and in this paper specifically is through the the organizing framework that you present, right? So you have this, um, you know, looking at the instructional events, the learning events, the learning outcomes, and the instructional outcomes. So I think that's a really nice way for really anyone who cares about um, learning and development in organizations for adults to to start thinking about this more holistically. So maybe you could walk us through that a little bit and break it down. Sure. So because it's, it's a model, it's like really complex and it has feedback loops and, you know, squiggly lines and things like that. But, but just to really simplify it, there are four components to the science of workplace instruction model there. And you just named them. So you get an, you get an A for, for, for today's quiz. Uh, you have instructional events, which lead to learning events, which lead to learning outcomes, which lead to instructional outcomes. And so if I was teaching this in an undergraduate class and I was trying to help my students build a framework to try to understand it, the first thing I would say is think about everything. Think of when you see the word instructional, think of things that are observable that you would see a trainer doing, an organization might do. And when you see the word learning, think of something that's latent inside the head of the student, the training participant, or so forth. And so the instructional events occur first in the model. There are things that someone does to identify the need for training, these assessment, to design the training, and to deliver the training. All three of those things are visible, observable. They all have an impact on subsequent learning. Learning events are things that occur inside the head of the student, the training participant, or whatever. And so it's just engaging in those mental processes. I'm actively, I'm acting on the information, I'm making sense of it. I'm figuring out ways that I'm never going to forget this information. I'm in, engaged in learner control. I'm engaged in self-monitoring of my learning. Oh, wait a minute. Did, did I get that right? Is it in my notes? Do I fully understand that before I move on? That kind of monitoring and adjusting are part of these learning events. When we navigate that process successfully, we engage in processes that we need to, we then achieve learning outcomes. And so the learning outcomes are what I wrote about, or what Kevin Ed and I wrote about in 1993, is these changes in knowledge, skills, and, and affect that result from doing the right thing, processing, you know, turn, things turning in my head during learning events lead to learning outcomes. But I'm still, this is what I inside my head have learned, have acquired, and are, are keeping uh, for long term. Then the, those in turn will lead to instructional outcomes. Instructional outcomes are, again, the things that we can do. So when we evaluate training, that's an instructional outcome. It's, so it's literally people's scores on measures of those outcomes, but I'm the one administering the assessment. Um, the, it's the transfer training environment. It's whether the person goes into the job um, and applies what they've learned. It's job performance. Now that I'm applying what I'm learning, then am I actually, uh, if I'm, when I'm applying what I'm learning, am I actually doing my job better? And then is, is there an impact at the organizational level now that people are doing their jobs better? Uh, can we see an impact of greater safety, greater performance effectiveness? So those are the four components. That's fantastic. And, you know, this is something we were going to bring up a little bit later, but I just would love to kind of get your thoughts on it now um, because it just feels right. Is, you know, when we're looking at training evaluation, right, this is in, in every, you know, you go to the Association for Talent Development, you're going to hear people talk about, you know, the the four levels of training evaluation, the Kirkpatrick model and 
Um, you had mentioned early on how you know there there's some other ways to do this, to to put it lightly. Um, you know, what what are your thoughts about training evaluation within this context and thinking about it more holistically? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that I have tried to fight in my career, and I don't think I'm always successful, particularly in the applied world, but it, it's it's to keep people from kind of doing reflexive behavior. So, you know, I, I did a training program, and now I have to pass out the smile sheets. Um, or, you know, I, I, I have to give a, a post-test at the end, and, and when you ask training professionals why you're doing that, the, the answer is usually, well, we've always done it that way, or we have to do it that way, or someone else is doing it that way, and, and without really kind of a clear idea of kind of what, they, um, what they're going to get out of it. So the, the Kirkpatrick mythology, the uh, measuring reactions, learning, behavior, and performance, I, I'm slowing down and struggling because they make a little sense to me that I, had, I, I, I sometimes I just suppress, maybe it's, I suppress them or whatever. But yeah, those are the four <laughs> that um, that if all I'm doing is giving out reaction sheets because um, it, it's what I've always done. That, that where does it get me as a training director, as a trainer? If I ask myself, um, how can I collect information when people are in the room in order to do my job better? Now I'm solving a practical problem that leads me to think, what are some of the things that I want to know? Are, are my examples relevant? Did people have enough time to practice what they're trying to learn before they go out? So that reframing, like what do I want to accomplish, and um, is it, something that's not really encouraged when you follow a, a mythology because you're just doing the things that you're supposed to do in, in the order set. And, and when you step back and say, what, you know, what's the purpose? Why are we doing this? Uh, what do we hope to learn? How are we going to change our behavior as trainers, training directors, and so forth? That's a lot of where what's, um, the main chapter that I wrote on evaluation, which is now almost 20 years old, I called it decision-based evaluation. Um, it's in a book that I edited in 02, and, and that title was deliberate because evaluation should be the result of decisions that allow you to make better decisions about when and how to offer uh, training. Awesome. So when you think about your, you know, this model of workplace instruction, um, you, you also in, in your paper talk about, you know, what effective instruction even is, and you have some different elements of, um, you know, of kind of workplace instruction. Uh, I wonder if you could like walk us through that a little bit and maybe some of these principles, maybe some of the core principles uh, that you outline as they pertain to workplace instruction that can help it be effective. Sure. So, one of the lessons that was reinforced from writing the chapter and one of the strongest things that I'm trying to communicate through the paper and some of the translational work I'm doing around that is that effective instruction works. And you might go, yeah, of course it works. But the, I think the prevailing opinion in the training professional profession is it works some of the time under the right conditions, and we have to twist ourselves into a pretzel to get it to work right. And so we have to design one type of training for um, extroverts, another type of training for introverts. And the case that effective instruction works said, no, what you have to do is be good at your job. And when you're good at the job, good things happen. And 
there's resistance to that. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Um, like you can go back, this is a little bit off topic, but if you go back to the early meta-analyses in the 80s, Schmidt and Hunter would do a validity generalization study and say, tests are effective predictors under uh, performance under all conditions. That created an uproar. Because how can you say that? It has it just jobs, you know, tests, different tests are needed for different types of jobs or whatever. And we resist the idea that the things we do are effective. We do them right. And so I, that's one of the messages of the book is if you do things right, you'll be good at your job. And that's what you should be doing. So to answer your question, one of the ways that you design effective instruction is to incorporate as many instructional principles as you can into the design and delivery of the training. And I think you mentioned that there we highlight five. We actually had 15 instructional principles in our mm -hmm. chapter, but they're organized into kind of five broad themes. Um, that 15 and the organizing of the 15 into five is was arbitrary. I think I can defend it, but someone else could come up with three that weren't in there. I've, I've had discussions with training professionals who said, you left this one out, and I go, I agree, but I didn't want to write one. I didn't want to put 50 in there. These are for illustration purposes. But so the five general categories are you effectively organize your content, you optimize the sequence of delivery, you engage the learner, you create effective practice conditions to reinforce learning, and then you train people beyond mastery. You don't get them to a minimum level and say, okay, you're on your own now. So those are the five. I can go through any of those and just give a quick example if you want or... Yeah, no, I, I think that that would be helpful, right? Because I think what we're, we'd love for any, any learning and development people who are potentially listening to this podcast, it'd be great, you know, for them to think about, hey, you know, what are some things that I should think about when I'm designing or delivering training um, that would be, that would make it more effective from this perspective that you offer? Sure. And, and so I should have mentioned that these are all uh, empirically supported uh, in the table in our chapter. We, we define it, we give examples of it, and then we kind of list briefly the research evidence that supports these. But so here's some examples. So under organizing content in a meaningful way, two really quick and really easy examples. One is an advanced organizer. At the beginning of training, you say to people, one of two things, this is how you will use this on your job. Or this is the sequence of events throughout that I'm going to work through. And it's like, kind of like a class outline. So back in the day when there used to be blackboards or whiteboards and there used to be smiling faces sitting in the room with us, you might walk to the board and say topic one, topic two, topic, topic three. Either of those, as this information is coming into the learner, they're going, oh, that's why he's telling me this because I'm going to use it back on the job or or that's why it's telling me, because this definition is going to set up the skill practice that we're doing later. So that's one. Another one, which is fun to talk about, partly because of the name, is seductive details. Um, seductive details are, are anything in a slide, a presentation, verbal, or, or whatever, that is kind of seductive. It's glamorous. It's violent. It's sexy, whatever. But it's not related to the content. So I, I call this the Dilbert cartoon. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not saying I think Gilbert's <laughs> sexy, but you, you're, you're walking through. You're, you're watching the training program, and all of a sudden, there's a Gilbert cartoon that pops up, and it's funny, and it draws your attention to it. And what all this? It's a little bit mixed. I'm oversimplifying, I should say. But what happens is that when I'm paying attention to reading the Gilbert cartoon, um, I'm, I'm 
uh, missing out in the main content. So since I've learned about this, my slides are now pretty bare bones. Um, I, I don't have these distractors on the slides, pictures and things like that. There's nothing wrong with stepping back for a second and say, hey, we've been working really hard for 10, 15 minutes. Let's take a break right now. And I'm going to tell you a joke or I'm going to show you a Dilbert cartoon. Let's get back and look at my kind of sterile, clean slides because I want you focusing on the content, not the side issues. So that's organizing content. Optimizing sequence, a really easy one, is spacing of the material. Um, from a learner's perspective, if you have a math final in college, if you study one hour a night for four nights, you're going to learn more than if you study four hours and one night the cramming thing. Cramming doesn't work. Um, so if I have to take content instead of press, compressing all of it in, into a training session, if I can spread that out over a couple of sessions or even morning, afternoon, retention goes up a lot. Uh, it really goes up a lot when I allow people to sleep because while we're sleeping, our brain has been processing that stuff that we learned during the day. Um, engaging the learner, a uh, really simple one is the testing effect. It's, I call it the flashcard effect. If you studied for a final in school and you wrote your definition on one side, the concept on the other, and quizzed yourself on it, um, that's really easy to do in instruction. I might put a definition up my students, I go a couple slides and I put the word up and say, what was, the def what was the definition I said two slides ago? And because I'm not a good teacher, they all go, ah, I don't remember. But because I'm also a, a good training researcher, they go, oh, uh, I, now I, I go, I'll repeat it or whatever. And they go, now I'll never forget it. And they won't. That, that being tested, realizing I didn't remember it, kind of being embarrassed by that, Seeing it a second time really improves retention. So that's the testing effect. Practice variability. Um, if I, uh, I used to golf, and if I went to the driving range with my driver and hit the driver for 30 minutes, when I went back out the next time, um, it would work. Um, I, my, my ability to acquire skill goes up when I just do the same thing over and over again. But my overall golf game goes on, goes goes awry because I use different swings for different types of clubs. And so what I want to do is I have 10 minutes with the driver, walk over to the chip and get 10 minutes there. And by doing that, I slow the rate of acquisition, but I really, I'm, I'm much more mirroring real life conditions and I'm learning better. The, the beyond mastery is really simple, just over learning. You know, as soon as someone does it right, you know, you're, you're teaching your kids how to ride a bike and you're running behind them, you push them and they're up and they're kind of wobbling and then they make it. And you say, okay, you're done. You're on your own now. That's not a good training technique because they're going to fall. You have to do it like five, ten more times until they really go, yeah, now I get it, Dad. Cool. So let me, let me just get you to riff on a few things. And these weren't even in our prep, right? Um, so you mentioned adult learners because, right, a lot of the pedagogy and a lot of stuff for training and instruction does come through, hey, K through 12 education, right? Is, is there real data that supports a difference in adult learning and youth learning? Uh, effective instruction trumps everything. So, so the, the short answer is, yeah, uh, to the extent I would do the exact same training for older adults, younger adults, not for kids, but for older and younger adults. Um, there, so in that sense, no, there's not research to support that they're, you know, like one of the things you read in adult learning literature is you have to show them why it, the learning is relevant. That's the advanced organizer, but that applies for everyone. 
if I go into a classroom of 20-year-olds and I go, I'm going to talk about stuff that you'll never use, or I'm not, it's not clear on how you're going to use it, they're not going to learn either. So there's nothing magic about, you know, being 45 and wanting to know what, how I'm going to use this. There is, and I have personal evidence of this, there is plenty of research to show that our cognitive processes, our, our, our processing speed, our working memory, things like that steadily decline, you know, from like 22, 25 on. And so like if I'm, if I'm designing training, say for 55 year olds, um, and I might take a training program for a 25 year old and just give them more time to complete it. Mentally, they're gonna be doing the same thing. The instructional content looks the same, but because I know their reading ability is a little bit slower now, or their processing speed, Instead of cramming it into 30 minutes, I might give them 45 minutes or even unlimited time to do it, but they're going to follow the same mental processes and respond to the same instructional principles as a younger person. Yeah, I think that's so, so important as people, you know, think about this. All right, another one deals with, and I don't know if your research touches this, at least I haven't, you know, because I haven't read everything you've put out, but. I, I you know, Chris, Chris, I, I haven't, I haven't read any, everything that I've written either. So <laughs> I, I happen to be, I, I, I was looking in Google Scholar for something like the, my, my, my page. And there was an article I wrote with Herman Guinness and I have no memory of, this is like from 1994 or something <laughs> like that. I, I like, did I do that? My name's on it, but yeah. So I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I'm sure it was brilliant. That's it's awesome. Like, it's like the Beatles. You have so many hits. You can't remember the words <laughs> to all the songs, right? So, all right. So you talk about train and pass mastery, right? Which I think that's fantastic. But how does that overlap with some of the data and thinking around expertise and decision-making, right? So you're training somebody and you have an idea of an outcome that they'll be able to do something and say, let's say maybe take medical doctors or something like that. We're expecting them to combine what you're teaching them with. How does that idea of mastery and then expertise and decision-making, how do those lay on top of each other? In models of expert performance, and there's, there's a bunch of them, but they're, they're really, they're, they're all similar in the sense that, you know, we begin as a novice, which means like we have no knowledge or no skills. And then there's, there's kind of an initial level of proficiency where I can do it, but I'm also, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a lot of it is in my kind of conscious brain. So it takes a lot of kind of monitoring to know how to do it. And then I begin to automate the, the processes that I need to know, which simply means I can do those things more without thinking about it. And then there's this level beyond where, um, as a, if I'm a true expert, like playing chess or driving my car or whatever it is, um, when I truly become an expert in the way that, that cognitive psych psychologists talk about it, I've not only automated things, but I kind of changed the nature of the game. So um, I, I can think of exceptions to the rules that I've learned. I can make assumptions that narrow the task and change the task. Um, and so I really start solving problems different than the ones that were confronted with me by applying kind of a bigger mindset, a broader mindset that, that I have to it. Does that make sense? I'm not sure I explained that one well. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's good because, you know, a lot of these L&D people, you know, they don't really think of a difference between mastery of a topic and then really, you know, because they want people to be kind of riffing with the knowledge and maybe adding to their performance beyond what they get in a classroom setting or coaching environment, right? Sure. Yeah, and I would think also, you know, again, I guess it's kind of an argument for long-term spacing, but when I'm engaged in these mental processes trying to make sense of information, part of what I'm doing is comparing it to what I know. And so, and as I do that, like, is this the same thing I've done before? How is it different? How will it help me? Thinking about the content in those ways allow, kind of facilitates the speed at which this new idea gets to bond with other stuff that's already in there. And so I know a lot of medical schools are doing this where they're giving their students more clinical experience in their first year. And the reason for that is that instead of just learning like all of the muscles or all of the veins in the body, if I see someone bleeding and someone says, this is coming out of the XYZ uh, vein, then I go, oh, now that I've seen that experience, when I'm in the classroom next month learning, memorizing the veins, I'm able to kind of visualize something and, and connect it. So I think about over, not so much in a training program, but as a, uh, as a lifelong learner who happens to have a job, a lot of what's happening is the cycling between I know a little bit, I see something happen in the real world that is relevant to it, I understand where the gaps are in my knowledge based on that. I kind of study it, I think about it, I change what I know and what I'm able to do to account for that situation. And then I encounter a new situation. I go through, continually go through cycles on the job of seeing where I came up short, adapting by acquiring more knowledge, more skills. Awesome. So, you know, one thing that I'm curious about and um, kind of comes from my interactions with people in the practitioner realm. I have a lot of friends who are, you know, do talent management as well as uh, learning and development. I'm sure you have many colleagues in there too. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a push toward, at least I've heard from a number of people toward, Hey, how can I have bite-sized, they call it bite-sized learning. You know, can I find these short clips or short things that, that can help people um, with their learning? And it's, it's an interesting idea, but I'm, I'm wondering, does that work? Does it, does it make any difference if you just have these short clips for things or I guess, or maybe under what conditions might it work? What do you think? Yeah. So I think, the if if you always begin by asking yourself why are we doing this you know what problem are we trying to solve um, you know you, we've all done this we're working on a word document or something and we want to put the two little dots over the O and I don't know how to do that and I've done it you know a hundred times I've never spent the time learning it in a way that will allow me to retain that information but I also don't have to because I can just there's this thing called the internet. And I can just type in how to put two dots over an O, and then I can get something, and I can do it, and I can move on. And, and before Google was invented, Google search was invented, the word, word processor did that. So I could just ask my, my word processor, how do I do this? And it, it helps me to do it. So that accessing this little bit of information that allows me to solve a really small problem, that's super helpful. And if, if Word said to me, the Word software said to me, you're going to have to take a four-hour class in fundamentals of Word to figure out how to do that solution, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to cite someone else that doesn't have the, the O with the two dots. 
so I think, you know, thinking about do we have to have, you know, an eight-hour training program on blank when we could just embed small videos or informational pieces, job aids that are easily accessible, that makes all the sense in the world to me. That's really logical. But I think when you talk about micro-learning, things like that, that it's all embedded on, or it's based on these assumptions that, you know, we have limited attention spans and we're capable of integrating all of these bite-sized information into kind of a coherent, meaningful whole, even though we have short attention spans and, and limited working memory. So on the one hand, we can't listen to five minutes worth of training uh, or 10 minutes worth of training. It has to be 30 seconds. But, but on the other hand, we can take 50 of these and in our spare time integrate them in a way that, that makes sense. And so I struggle with that. There's not empirical support that I've seen that people can do that. And again, the very first, very first sequence is, uh, the, I'm sorry, the very first instructional principle I meant was organize content in a meaningful way. If the literature, if training professionals had not been talking about these micro learnings as the greatest fad, and I came to you, Ben, and I said, I, I want to get your input on this idea. I'm developing a learning, learning uh, leadership development course, and it's four hours. But what I want to do is take my training content and divide it into, you know, there's 500 sentences. I want to divide it into 250 two-word sentences and periodically share it with people. What do you think about that? You go, that's a stupid idea. And, and sometimes that's what we're doing. It just makes a lot more sense to think about coherence of the content in a way other than just breaking it into bite-sized bits because we can do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think it's just kind of a reaction to, um, you know, organizations not actually caring about training too much and wanting to just check the box and say, yes, we're, we're doing something. Uh, we're, we're sending them these 30 second videos every Tuesday on how to be an awesome leader. Right. And it's like, well, that's not really how it works, especially for a complex topic, like, you know, leading people. Yeah. You know, something, my background is, uh, in it, uh, many years ago, and we would deal with some of these topics, and I don't see, uh, there's some, but not a whole lot of learning and development type people thinking about this in the broader topic of what we call knowledge management, right? You know, you have base level knowledge, that becomes information. There's this little triangle model about knowledge management. And, you know, in IT circles, you'd have stuff like, oh, we'll just make a wiki so people can quick access those little bite-sized knowledge pieces. But Really, what you, it seems to me, Kurt, is that you kind of have this bunch of stuff that people need to know, and you might want to just look at all the different tools, be that formal training, ongoing mentoring, coaching, maybe a bite-sized learning piece. So, Ben, yeah, and you might have seen this. Did you see um, the uh, sexual harassment video that talks about tea? Oh, like sure. This, yeah. You know, if somebody doesn't want tea, don't make them tea. That's that's a two minute bite sized learning that did better than any sexual harassment assault prevention videos or briefings that I've ever had in the army. And so knock on not, micro learning, if you will. I still remember that video and I don't even remember the content yeah. of the big briefs. Right. Yeah. Although I and I haven't seen the video. Um but again, when you go back to these instructional principles and when you begin thinking about how people learn, uh, people have to have their, their, their kind of their minds open. And so one of the ways that you do that as an instructor or as a producer of a video 
is you either you either you can challenge their knowledge. Um, you know, what do you think? You know, how would you handle a situation? You give them a scenario, and they go, "I'm confident that I would do A," and you go, "You know, actually, A is the wrong wrong thing." And there's a, let me tell you why B is better. I'm going to listen to that because you shook my confidence and and made me realize that I don't know everything. Uh, certainly, you know, I talk about how um, if I embed these seductive details in training content, I, I take attention attention away from the things that I'm learning, but I also have to begin by um, attracting their attention to begin with. So, you know, when we're in the classroom and everyone's, uh, there's 30 kids there looking at their phone and looking what's on Instagram, and I start talking, I'm not teaching them anything. They're not learning anything. So I have to figure out ways of, of capturing their attention, getting them to engage in the time of me. So like a really clever video um, that tells a story in a way that kind of makes us think and, and opens our mind just for a brief time. I mean, that, that makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. So before we move into talking about some implications that you might have for, for people, leaders, and organizations with regard to the science of workplace instruction, I do want to mention that, uh, you know, you shared with us that you're working on and you will be at some point putting out a, a book um, that is intended for the mass audiences out there. Uh, so I would just want our listeners to stay tuned to that. We will be sure to uh, promote that that endeavor uh, when it occurs here on the Indigo podcast and and hopefully have Kurt back to talk a little bit about it because I think that'll be fantastic. And it's something that's really needed out there in the learning and development world. So um, now let's let's maybe move into some implications. So, you know, we can think about this at a couple different levels, but maybe we just think about it. If you're a if you're an employee, if you're an individual contributor, you know, is there anything that we can do maybe to be better learners out there? Yeah, so in, um, I'm thinking about, you mentioned the book, I'm planning at this point to include a final chapter on how to be a better learner, which is what I think you're asking. And so, and what I'm going to try to do in the context of the book is broaden the concept of how to how to define effective instruction to how to define effective instruction for you as the learner. So how do I just, how do I create a, an effective learning event for myself? And there's a couple of really good books uh, on becoming a better learner. Benedict Carey has a book um, called, um, I think it's How Do We Learn? And so we talk, it's, his is a little bit more, it's, it's accessible, it's easy to read, but he begins with a lot of learning theory, but then kind of drills down into, okay, this is what you do. There's a book, How to Make It Stick. I think it's How to Make It Stick, The, the Science of Learning, which is a lot more at those levels of principle. So, like, spacing is better than cramming. So what you should do is you have a final exam, spread space it over, over multiple occasions. So I think um, so. I think those are those are better. Those would be the types of things that I would draw on. And those, if you if you had time to read the book, those are better. Those are going to be more informative than whatever I say next. But I think um, you know, it's. I'm going to pause for a second. I would say in my own, I've become a better learner over the last. 10 years or so as I've been thinking about, learning about the types of things that I want to pull into the book. And so, you know, I mentioned that, I, well, I don't golf now, but I've, in, in, I've implemented this practice variability. 
Um, I try to kind of organize the sequence of tasks. And so if I want to learn something new, I try to learn simpler stuff first and, and build on it. So it's, it's really, um, and I really try to challenge my thinking and talk to people who think differently than I do. And, and because that, that exposes me to kind of holes in my thinking. That's probably the one thing that I'm doing more of. You know, in the last year uh, or so, a lot of us have really made an effort to learn more about social justice and think about what we do, try to overcome our blind spots. And for me, that's been a lot of it, that's just been having conversations that I, it's not that, like, if I were to talk to to an African-American about how they see America, I'm not trying to learn their perspective so that it becomes my own, but I'm really trying to appreciate that they look at the world very differently than I do. And as soon as I get that, that's a learning outcome, right? I appreciate that their perspective is different than mine. As soon as that happens, then I'm much more motivated to look at my own behavior or think about things that I can be doing. But it kind of begins with that conversation about just kind of opening up my mind. Yeah. But but that requires you to be kind of curious and humble and, you know, um, maybe you know, even willing to, you know, face uncomfortable things that you might not know, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a wonder Ben's learned anything in his life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. So um, what about for leaders, uh, leaders in organizations? What What kinds of implications might... Um, you know, your ideas and some of your research around the, the science of workplace instruction have for them as they approach, you know, training, development? So I'd say three things. One is training works. Uh, I, it's not in the chapter uh, that, that we've been talking about, but I had a uh, 2013 uh, review paper that Salas was on, and I had another review paper with Herman McGinnis in 2009. In those, we cite meta-analysis, and not study after study, but meta-analysis after meta-analysis that shows that well-designed training leads to learning changes behavior can transform organizations. So it, it, it's important to know that well-designed training works, and that, that would be the, the, the first one. Second is to get to well-designed training, you have to be conscious, you have to be conscientious about the decisions you're making about what to train, how to train, and so forth. So this idea that you know, we offer this type of safety training program from this vendor because we've been doing it for the last 20 years. That There's no guarantee that repetition of a program is going to lead to effective training. So really thinking about what are we trying to accomplish? Who's the best person to do it? What's the best format to do it? Um, a lot of organizations have learned that they can deliver training effectively virtually in the last year or so. But if you just said, okay, from now on, we're going to deliver all learning virtually without thinking about what's the nature of the job. Do you need to be in a virtual format? What types of training programs work best lend themselves to that? Again, so it's, again, just being very deliberate. And the third is, um, this is this is more with respect to evaluation. I have a good friend of mine, Eric Surface, and he and I have talked a lot about training evaluation. He has sold me on the two questions method. And he and I have written a little bit about this, but they're more in practitioner, in the practitioner world. But he would say, and I agree, that in any evaluation, you're always trying to answer two questions. How am I doing? How can I do it better? The way those questions are asked depends on the role that the stakeholder has. So as a learner, 
if when I ask how am, how am I doing and how can I do better, the example I always like to use is if I'm a paramedic and I take my final exam on saving lives and I got a 70%, I, I need and I want to know that. Like I only know 70% of what I need to know, but I also, get, I also want to know how can I improve. And so if I'm a trainer, how did I do as a trainer? What could I be doing better if I'm a training director? Are people applying, learning, using the training that we're doing? And if not, what do we do to build those things in? We're investing you know, uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars, depending on the size of our organization. Is it working? And what are the pressure points that we can go after to improve it? So I think that's thinking of that two-question framework within the role that I'm at, whether I'm a trainer, HR director, CEO, whatever. I think those are really valuable ways of increasing the, the impact that my learning and development is having. Awesome. So, you know, you're a professor, I'm a professor, you're a professor who has studied training and learning and development for a long time. Has this influenced your approach in the classroom? Yeah, I think, um, you know, probably not as much as it should. Krager's yeah. um, <laughs> first law is that psychology is easier to teach than it is to learn. So it's kind of like the shoemaker's <laughs> kids, right? Have to wear shoes, and so. Um, but, but I, yeah, I think um, I'm writing about stuff. I go, oh, I, I should try this as well. So I do think like the advanced organizers is something that I've implemented. Um, I really believe that engage actively engaging the learner is the one of the best ways to get them to retain information. And so. When I'm standing up there lecturing for 45 minutes and they're looking at their phones, um, that that's not particularly um, that's not not going to be effective. So I, I've been moving towards more application, more more group work, where and then we come back from that and what was happening? Why didn't it go right? How could we do? You know, give, say you're doing a group problem solving task and the group struggles. Like what happened? What went wrong? How can we do it? Sometimes students are dissatisfied with that because they want to know the 10 definitions that they're going to be asked about on the test. But I keep persisting that these are the things that you're going to need to know. And by you trying them, seeing where your strengths and weaknesses are, and then us processing that, that's the best way I can get you to learn this content in a way that uh, you're going to be able to apply it. But, oh, by the way, if you've seen these principles in action, that's going to be a lot easier for you to remember those principles when when you're going to be tested on it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, so just kind of a, a broad question as we are starting to come down the home stretch here a little bit. And um, is I'm just curious, whenever I come across people who have done, you know, had successful research careers or really have done, you know, uh, interesting things in their careers in general, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what, what motivates you, Kurt? What, what, what inspires you? Uh, that's a tough question. Besides the vista of Hawaii that we're looking at outside your window over your shoulder. <laughs> For those that don't know, Kurt's living it up in Hawaii right now. <laughs> just for just for a month, Chris. That's, so, yeah, I get to come here for a month. And, uh, yeah, I do think um, I remember when um, my son was about eight. My daughter would have been about 11. We were driving around in the car, and I was asking my kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And um, sort of kind of having that conversation. And then my son out of the blue says, my dad has the best job in the world. And his mom, who was a veterinarian, said, I think 
you, you got to be kidding me. That he has like the worst job in the world. And my son said, no, he has the best thing. Again, he's eight years old. He says he has the best job in the world. He gets to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, as long as he does it well. And, and, I, and he'd heard that from me at some point, but he remembered that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I mean, that, that's not quite your question, but this is such an amazing job. And, and I love the autonomy that, that I have. Um, but the, the autonomy and, and the ability to have an impact comes from doing it well and working hard. Um, I, I, I'm really attracted to novelty. Um, the, I don't, I tell people that I am not a, re, I don't even, I'm not a great researcher. I'm not even sure I'm a good researcher or productive one. And people think I'm being self-facing, but if you look at my CV, there's not a lot of empirical studies on there. The impact that I've had is much more at a kind of a conceptual issue, hmm. asking and answering questions that other people don't think about. And that's what this science, science uh, this annual review paper was. And for me, that's really exciting. So I think I like um, I like integrating different ways of looking at things. I like offering a lens, a perspective for people to think about the work that they do, you know, either as researchers or as professionals. Those things get me really excited. And, and I mean, I enjoy working. Um, it's I have a job that I love, and I get to do really cool things. Um, but I'm using that to kind of be creative and expressive, build new things. And that's, I think that's, that's the excitement. Wonderful. Yeah. So, so Kurt, thank you so much for being on our podcast, but if people want to find you on the web or follow what you're doing so they can know when this book's coming out, where, where would they go to do that? So I, I, I think I dropped in our working document. I dropped my LinkedIn profile in, um, so finding me, um, but again, there's this search engine thing called Google. So you could just type my name and LinkedIn and, and you'll get there. I do not have like my own personal page. Um, I have a website for the book, but it's blank. So I think the best way to do it would be um, to look at LinkedIn or find me at the Department of Management at University of Memphis. And then you can find my CV there. You can find my contact information. Those would be wonderful. Wonderful. So, you know, Kurt, it has just been an absolute pleasure having you here on the Indigo Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything that you else that you would like to share with our audience? Anything else that you'd like to comment on? I'll let you have the last word. I want to thank you guys. That one of you know, I'm really excited. I think I'm in a, a stage in my career where I'm really wanting to focus on translational work, and so you know, to have the platform to come on and talk about what I'm doing, why it matters, how it relates. This has just been, uh, this has been a really fun experience. It's been really helpful for those long-term goals. But I'll say this, and this will be my last word, is this has also really been a good learning experience for me. So uh, there's a lot that I want to kind of think about, how things went, and that um, I can kind of continue to, to reflect and grow. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.